Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. Demetrius was a silversmith, and business was good. Demetrius lived in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a city that was in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And there in Ephesus, if you were to go there during this time, you would find a bustling economic center. It was a center of all sorts of trade. It was located at the mouth of a river. It was also located there on the shore of the Aegean Sea. And three major roadways connected Ephesus to the inland regions. And so people from all over Asia Minor came. People from all over that area came and did trade there in that city. It was an important commercial center. It was a huge city. It was a city that was, uh, in some inscriptions, even we find today, we find inscriptions that say it was the greatest metropolis in Asia. So it was a great commercial center. It was a great, it was a great cultural center. They had a, a library full of all sorts of scrolls of collected wisdom from all over the known world. They would have incredible festivals in the city of Ephesus. They had an amphitheater in the city of Ephesus that would hold 24,000 people, and they had a lot of events there. There in that amphitheater, religious events and entertainment events. It was a cultural center as well as a commercial center, but it was also a religious center. This religious center was based around one of the seven wonders of the ancient world that was located there in the city. These engineering marvels, these, these feats of architecture that were so incredible that they rightly earned the name wonders. You had the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. You had the Great Lighthouse at Alexandria. You had the Pyramid at Giza, the only one of the seven ancient wonders still standing today. And then you had one of those ancient wonders standing there in the city of Ephesus. It was the Temple of Diana. It was a massive structure, 377 feet by 197 feet, made completely out of marble. It shimmered, it shone, it was ornate, it was breathtaking. In fact, one of the ancient writers who visited there in Ephesus and saw the temple said that whenever he saw the temple, all the other wonders, the other six of them, lost their brilliancy. And this temple was to Diana, a goddess, also known as Artemis. She was the goddess of the hunt. She was goddess of childbearing. She was goddess of protection. And people from all over the known world would travel there to Ephesus to worship Diana, to worship Artemis in that temple. It was almost as if if you haven't worshipped Artemis in her temple at Ephesus, well, you really haven't worshipped Artemis. And so it would draw the attention of the faithful and the curious alike. Pilgrims, as well as tourists, they came from all over to, to worship or to gawk 
or maybe to hedge their bets and maybe just a little more divinity would be an okay thing to have on their side. But they showed up there in Ephesus by the droves. It was one of the seven wonders. And it was wondrous. It was the place to be in the ancient world. It was a bustling economic center. Everything was vibrant there. And you had a mix of all sorts of different people from all sorts of walks of life. And they're all converging here. And so if you wanted to be somewhere, you wanted to be in Ephesus. And if you were going to be in Ephesus, then you definitely had to go by and see the temple. It was sort of that five-star review, must-see thing on the trip advisor of the ancient world. And so you find that there was a group of people that because there was tourism and because there were worshipers, there were some people that, like any good tourist trap, emerge. The hawkers, the peddlers, the salespeople. The people who are cashing in on the religious fervor of the people who are showing up. The people who are cashing in and giving these people a, a, some sort of tangible item they can take home with them. And so there was a group of silversmiths. There was a silversmith guild, and they would produce these little amulets. These little amulets that had depictions of Artemis on them, or little depictions of the temple on them. And you could buy one, and you could get it on a necklace, or a bracelet, or an anklet, and you could wear this devotion on your body. And you could wear it and let everybody know, hey, been there, done that, got the charm bracelet, right? And this is where we get back to how we start our story. Demetrius was a silversmith, and business was good up until chapter 19 of the book of Acts. Because you find in chapter 19 of the book of Acts, Paul comes down from the inland regions. He doesn't travel on a ship, he's inland. And so he travels one of those three roads, most likely, and he arrives at Ephesus. And as Paul arrives at an Ephesus, at Ephesus, things begin to happen. Translated, God begins to use him. So he shows up and he finds some people who were disciples of John the Baptist. And he says, listen, um, do you know about baptism in the name of Jesus? And they said, no. And he said, do you know about the Holy Spirit? They said, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And so Paul teaches them and instructs them and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Then you find that Paul goes, as he usually does, he goes to a synagogue. There were some Jewish people there in the city of Ephesus. And so he goes to the synagogue and he begins to reason and he begins to teach. And some people begin to believe and some people begin to respond in a very negative way. And there's some pushback. The Bible says there's, there's some negative talk about the way. That was the earliest manner in which they describe Christianity, the way which seems pretty fitting for a group of people who are following the way, the truth, the life, that being Jesus. So they were called people of the way. And the way was getting in the way. And so you have these people that are pushing back and saying, no, we don't want you to be talking about this. So Paul takes some of the disciples and he begins to teach them and they begins to instruct them. And then the Bible tells us that all sorts of things begin to happen supernaturally. God begins to work through Paul, and Paul begins to heal people. And evil spirits begin to come out. 
And then it says that such was the power that even if a handkerchief had touched Paul, when somebody took it back and put it on the person who was sick, they would be healed or put it on the person who was demonized and they would be set free of that control. That's some pretty potent stuff. Then you find that there are these seven sons of a Jewish priest and they are performing an exorcism. And there is a man who is controlled by demons and they begin to pull out all the stops and, and at some point in time, they try this approach. They, they try to, to rebuke the demon and, as, and the terminology they use is by the Jesus that Paul preaches. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe he's the Messiah, but they see there's power in the name of Jesus. And so they say, by this Jesus that Paul preaches, yeah, we, we command you to leave him alone. And the demon responds with that typical satanic sarcasm. Jesus, mm, I know him. And Paul, oh yeah, I recognize him. But who are you? And the man controlled by the demon jumps on these seven sons, overpowers them beats them up, strips them, and then they run out fleeing from his presence. And the Bible says that because of this, the name of Jesus was extolled in the area. <laughs> God can use even the sarcasm of a demon to bring glory and honor and praise to the name of his son. And that's what he does. But then, after that occurrence, you have some of the local magicians, some of the people who are pr practicing black magic, that was, big, that was big business. Not only selling silver trinkets was big business, but, but black magic was a big deal in Ephesus. And in many cases, they believe that many of the inscriptions that were on the statue of Artemis there in the temple were written in these magical books and they were used to cast spells and to perform incantations. And you find that after all these things are happening, some of these People who are practicing the dark arts show up before Paul and his companions and they say, we don't want anything else to do with any of this. We are giving up on this. You are truly the representative of the one true God. We want what you have. And so we're going to burn our scrolls, our magical scrolls. And before they set them ablaze, somebody, probably a Baptist at the time, calculates how much were these things worth? And they come up with 50,000 pieces of silver is how much all of these magical scrolls were worth. And they burn them to a crisp. Demetrius was a silversmith. And business was good. But now this Paul coming in. And we've heard about what he did in other areas. We heard about how he, he visited other areas of Asia Minor and other places in the region. He's been to Thessalonica, caused a riot. He went to Corinth. He's been to all these different places and he's going around. He went to Athens and he's going around and he's preaching this whole Jesus thing. And you find in, in Acts chapter 19, verse 20, this word. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. It wasn't just increasing, it was prevailing. The word of God was overriding all of these pagan quote-unquote, air-quote, truths. And then we get to verse 21 of chapter 19. 
Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, I'll go ahead and give you a spoiler alert. This follows a very similar pattern that you find throughout the book of Acts. It's not always a one-to-one, but it's a similar pattern. What you find happening all through the book of Acts is that a religious leader, Paul, or one of the other apostles, shows up somewhere, preaches. There are people who are converted to Christianity and following the one true God, And then you find there are people who are oppositional to that, and they cause trouble. And then God either supernaturally rescues the people who are preaching his message, or he uses natural means to extricate them from that situation. Now, in some instances, it doesn't follow all all those four points of that pattern, but we find in this case it does. Paul preaches. People are saved. And now there's a disturbance that emerges. Spoiler alert, what happens is a group of the people get together, they they get two of Paul's companions, they take them down to this amphitheater that holds 24,000 people, and there is this huge riot, and they're screaming out over and over again, great is the Artemis of the Ephesians, great is the Artemis of the Ephesians, and they go on for two hours screaming this over and over and over and over and over and over again. You find in verse 32, it says, now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. I I sometimes click on the news and I think about that verse. Most of these people do not know why they have come together. So you find that this riot takes place and they are all in an uproar and they scream and they yell for two hours and you find that ultimately, I'm going to give you the end and then we're going to back up. The town clerk stands up and says, listen, these people have done nothing wrong. Most of you don't even know why you're here, and we're about to be charged with a riot. Go home. And everybody disperses. But let's back up to what Demetrius said. Because Demetrius was a silversmith, and business was good until this moment. You back up and you look at what Demetrius says, because Demetrius has an understanding that we need to grasp. In his little short speech, he hits on some things that hit us at the deepest level. Because Demetrius is saying some things. Demetrius understands this Jesus that Paul is preaching, this way that he is speaking of, is a direct threat to our way of life. 
We have a way of doing things. We have a way of believing things. We have a way of following through with things. And what Paul is preaching is in direct opposition to that. And so you find that the way doesn't allow for any other way. And the way doesn't allow us to have it our way. Demetrius was very right in this. God is not about to leave his, their, or our expectations intact. And you find that it's very true when the Holy Spirit shows up and begins to work in our hearts like in the place or in Ephesus or in other places we find in the book of Acts. When God shows up and starts to do a work in your heart, you either respond in a riot or revival. Because that's what you find happens whenever Paul shows up and Paul starts preaching Jesus to these people all over the known world. There's either a riot or there's a revival. And the same goes on in our heart from day to day when the one true God confronts our idols. So I want to look at the words of Demetrius. I want to look at these few lines here that he says. And very briefly, I just want us to talk about what do we risk losing when God threatens our idol? If we lose our idol, what's at risk? Well, Demetrius lays it out for us very beautifully. Look at verse 25. It says, these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. He goes on and he says in verse 27, there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute. What's he talking about? Demetrius understands that their accumulated resources are at risk. See, something I didn't mention to you earlier. Not only was the temple of Artemis a great cultural attraction, a great tourist attraction, a great attraction for the faithful worshipers of Artemis, but this temple also served as their bank. From the most lowly to the uber-wealthy, they would take all of their holdings and the temple was like a giant safekeeping repository or a, a giant safe deposit box, if you will, for all of their funds. The temple treasury. In latter years, that temple became the dominant bank in that area of the ancient world. That one place, it became the center of finance. And so we find that Demetrius says, listen, guys, we're making a pretty penny off these guys and women who are coming in here to worship Artemis. I mean, I got a brand new line of little silver amulets coming out in the fall. It's going to be the fall collection, going to be a big seller. It's not going to sell as much if we keep on with this whole Jesus thing that we're hearing. We got to do something about this because our accumulated resources are at risk. You realize that the Bible warns. The Bible doesn't say it's a sin to be wealthy. That's not what the Bible says. There are many people in the Bible who are wealthy. But the Bible always condemns and warns about depending upon our accumulating resources and placing our trust and faith in that other th or rather than placing our faith in God. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Paul writes, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. 
Timothy served as a leader there in the city of Ephesus for a time. And Paul writes to him and says, tell them not to depend on their riches. Because Ephesus was an extraordinarily wealthy city. Notice what he says. Don't be haughty. Don't set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Demetrius was saying, this Jesus poses a threat. We're depending on the temple of Artemis. We're depending on selling these things. That's our livelihood. And if people start burning their magical books and people start start talking bad about Artemis and and people don't come and then people start getting saved, who's going to come to the temple and worship and who's going to buy our wares and what are we going to do? How are we going to put food on the table, guys? The idea that Jesus, following Jesus, can be a threat to your accumulated resources. It can be. I've talked to people involved in business over the years who have said things like this to me. Dustin, you know I'm a Christian. You know I love Jesus. But I can't talk and live like a Christian in front of a lot of my customers because if I did, I'd lose my customers. So when I'm with my customers, I talk a certain way. I use certain foul language. I tell the dirty jokes. I, 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 I do all these things, but I don't ever mention God because I know the moment I mention Jesus, I'm going to lose that customer. Can I just tell you? That's a Demetrius mindset. That's what it is. That's a Demetrius and Ephesus mindset. That's putting your faith and your trust in the accumulated resources, whether that is people resources or whether that's financial resources. Listen, there, there's no middle ground. You don't go to Jesus and just go, oh yeah, I understand. I understand why you didn't. I understand why you shunned me. I understand when, I understand when that customer told that joke, making fun, uh, making fun of me. I, I, I understand. I get it. I understand. You got to make a living, right? You don't find Jesus saying that. When God threatens our idols, one of the things that's at risk is our accumulated resources. Listen to Psalm 52. It's in the Old Testament too. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. That's saying, listen, don't depend on the riches instead of God. This is a, this is a cautionary statement. Don't depend on that because if you're depending on that, you're trusting in your own destruction. Matthew 6, 24, the words of Jesus, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's not saying money's a bad thing, but money is a terrible master. Money is a terrible ruler. Money's a terrible God. And so is any sort of possession we depend upon other than God himself. What's at risk if you lose your idol? Demetrius' words, your accumulated resources. But not just accumulated resources, he goes a little further. Look at verse 27. There is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. Not only accumulated resources, but human religion. Human religion's at risk. Human religion is at stake. Demetrius says, listen, first thing that's going to happen is they're not going to buy the stuff that we're selling. The second thing, since they're not buying what we're selling, they're also not going to come and they're not going to worship at the temple, which is going to hurt us. It's also going to hurt our religious system. 
It's going to hurt our belief system. People are going to start to push back on what we teach. And then you have in the book of Acts, just a little earlier, two chapters earlier in Acts 17, 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. That's not what God is. He's not formed by the art of man, by the imagination of man, by the creativity of man or the logic of man. He's not formed by either of those. He is God and he's God alone. And anything that we construct ourselves is a false human religion that can never hope to bear up under the weight of what we face. Nor, not only the weight of what we face, not even reality according to God's word. We won't read it all, but in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 4, Paul gives a laundry list of all of his human abilities, all of his, the, the religious standards that he met as a human while he was this practicing Pharisee. And he says, listen, I followed the law. I did this. I followed all the rules and the regulations and jumped through every holy hoop. And I did all the right things at the right time in the right way. And then you get all the way down to verse 7 of Philippians 3. And Paul writes, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. It's all loss. None of it matters. None of these things from the human religious standpoint matter when you compare them to Christ. This is what Paul was warning the church at Colossae about. In Colossians chapter 2 verse 8, Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Don't fall for the human philosophy. Don't fall for the human-based theology. Don't fall for those things that elevates humans above God himself. Don't fall for the things that come our way on a daily basis that say man is the measure of all things and man is a God and man can create reality and man is the one who determines what truth is. Don't fall for it, Paul says. And then you have Demetrius saying, we're about to lose our religion, people. We're going to lose the thing that we care about most. We're going, to lose, we're going to lose our livelihood and we're going to lose our religion. This is a dangerous thing, Demetrius said. Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Well, they're not. But that's what Demetrius is saying. Paul is saying that the gods that we make aren't real gods. <gasps> Gasp. What? The nerve. Of course they're gods. Look, I made it. I can bow down to it. It's my God. We have the same thing today, right? We have the same handmade gods going on around today. Just name whatever political philosophy or name whatever new aberrant theological uh, fad that's going on. And there are no new ones. They're just rehashes of old ones. There are, there are no new heresies. They just retread them like tires. It's all that's happening. Nothing is new under the sun. Solomon was right. He's still right. So you find that we have to understand that God is going to call into account every one of those counterfeit man-made religious items that we cling to other than him. Acts chapter 7, verse 48. I didn't put this on your outline Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. The argument goes on. Do you know why? Because God said, I made it all with my hand. If I made it with my hand, 
You mean to tell me you're going to make something with your hand that I made, I made you with my hand, and then you're going to take your hands and make something that you're going to force me to dwell in? I don't think so. That's not even logical. You give up this human religion. You go all the way back to verse 19. Those 50,000 pieces of silver that were the equivalent of of the uh, price of those books that were burned, right? I was reading over this this week, and God just hit me. Hey, what scrolls do you need to burn? That's what he hit me with. You got some scrolls that you just need to pitch on the fire and you need to burn? No, not sell them to somebody else. and No, not try to make a, turn a profit off of them. I mean, like what are the scrolls in your heart that you just need to pitch on the fire and you need to burn them up because following Christ is worth more than whatever those things cost? Our accumulated resources are at risk. Our human religion and finally our earthly reputation. Look what he says. Artemis, verse 27, Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship, their earthly reputation. Guys, it's bigger than just our job. It's bigger than just our religion. Ephesus is known for this. And if she goes down, our reputation goes down. Look at the temple, guys. Look how magnificent it is. Look at all these tourists all over the place. Look at all these religious faithful all over the place. If this goes down, it's not only, be, it's not only going to be a blow to Ephesus, it's going to be a blow to the whole region. Don't you see? Our reputation is at stake. The interesting thing is you don't find Jesus real interested in our earthly reputations. He just is not that interested in that. If anything, Jesus seems bent on messing up our earthly reputation. Now, I know around this time somebody will say, but it says that we're to be spoken of well and that that people are to speak of us well, and, and that's a good thing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, we're supposed to be good citizens. Sure, absolutely. But understand, to be right with God puts you at odds with people. That's the reality. And if we're trying to operate where we're saying, what's that safe distance? What's the acceptable distance? How close can I get to Jesus and still claim to be a Christian, even if I'm just a a Sino, C-I-N-O, a Christian in name only, right? How close can I get to Jesus and still be called a Christian, but how close can I stay to everybody else and still be accepted? Jesus doesn't play that. Jesus says, you're either all with me or you're not with me. That's the way it is. You find in Galatians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul addresses this. As we have said before now, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you are receiving, let him be accursed. And that's just, he doesn't say, let him be considered and then politely tell them, no, we believe something else. No, Paul says, if someone is preaching a gospel contrary to the one I'm preaching, they are accursed. Those are strong words. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul says, listen, if I was concerned about my reputation and making everybody else happy, I would not be a Christian because this is not the way to do it. This is just not the path. Jesus made that clear. Luke 6, 26, woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. 
Jesus says, you need to be worried if everybody says, I just love him. He's so great. I get along with him just fine. I agree with him on everything. Jesus says, woe to you. Woe to you when all the people accept you. Because that's mean, that means that you aren't living in such a way that you are reflecting God himself. You find in John chapter 12, we won't read the, the whole passage, but in John chapter 12, you find that many of the authorities, many of the religious leaders believe in Jesus, but they don't want to say anything about it. Why? John 12, 43. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So I guess the question is, when you get right down to this, are, are, are we more concerned about being accepted in culture or bringing honor to God? I mean, we have to understand that. You can't value both equally. Both. No, you can't battle, value both equally. You, you know, the narrow way does not have a fence running right down the middle of it, right? We don't, we don't do that. Now, let me just give you this. What happened to that temple? The temple of Artemis. Well, you can go there today and you can see what's left of it. That 377 by 197 foot building with 127 marble columns ringing it. If you go there today and look, you know what you find? One column and a few foundation stones. It reached a point that Christianity had grown to the point that when some invaders came in and destroyed the temple, everybody went, yeah, okay. Whatever. We can use that stuff for something else. And we say, wow, that's great. And it is. Well, what happened to the church in Ephesus? You read in the New Testament. That's the one church that Paul doesn't have one of those really strong, really in-their-face warnings about. It's a church that they were a loving church. But then you go over into the book of Revelation and you find that John addresses the church at Ephesus. Jesus speaking through John. Jesus speaking and, and John writing down this vision and passing that letter along. It says, I, I, I know, you, I know you're, not, you're not following those who are teaching wrong things. I know, I know these things that you're doing. I know your works. But, but I have this one thing against you. You've left your first love. So repent and do the first works. What are the first works? What we just looked at. Do those first works when Paul first came. And you were so faithful and you were so passionate and you didn't have anything before God. Do those. Go back to that. Otherwise, otherwise your church ain't going to last. And the church didn't last. They're in Ephesus. Now there was a remnant. There's just a little tiny remnant. But as a whole... You don't find a vibrant, growing church there in Ephesus. Why? Because what Jesus warned about in Revelation, they didn't do. You find that they lost their first love, and they didn't go try to find him again. And because of that, they experienced sort of the same thing that that old temple of Artemis experienced. You're hard-pressed now in the area to maybe find 3,000 believers just in that whole massive area surrounding where ancient Ephesus stood. It's all different. But hey, there's 3,000 who are a remnant, and there's 3,000 who are a gospel witness there, and there's 3,000 of them who are living for Christ 
Absolutely. And then I think about us. Not experiencing maybe some of these pressures. Do we regard Jesus as worth that much? Do we regard him as worth all our resources and all our human religion and everything that we would depend upon so far as making our reputation great? Listen, listen to the words of Jesus. Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Burn your scrolls and buy that field. That's what it comes down to. I don't care what you have. I don't care what you're depending on. I don't care what you love. I don't care what you cling to. I don't care what you prop up in your own shrine, in your own temple, what amulets or charms that you wear that you depend upon. Not one of them, nor all of them, all accumulated and added up through all time will ever come even close to the magnificence and glory of the one Jesus Christ. Not, not all of them. Not all of yours, not all of mine, not all of them through the ages. What's, it, what's at risk when God threatens our idol? Everything other than Jesus. And he's worth it. He's worth it. He's worth it. If you're here today and you got an idol, can I just tell you, put it down. Burn your scroll. Buy that field. Lay it aside. Let the temple fall. Don't go in there anymore. Turn to the one true God. If, if, you're, if you don't know Christ, you can know Christ and know him as Savior. Not just know about him, not just have intellectual knowledge about him. No, know him intimately, personally. And he'll enter into a relationship with you, forgiving of your, you of your sins, redeeming you, buying you back. He bought you back by his blood. And if you receive him in faith, he will save you, he will transform you, and make you over into his likeness as time goes on. That's his promise. But if you've got an idol, God won't stand any competition. God's going to say, no. That area of your life, you've said it's off limits to me. Get rid of that idol. Get rid of that idol and embrace the one true God. What's threatened when God threatens our idols? What's at risk? Everything other than Jesus. Everything other than Jesus. And if he paid for it all, then I can give him all that I am. Because he owns it. It's his already. It's his already. We don't bow down to a lifeless, breathless idol. We bow before a living God. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful for your truth. We're thankful for your word. God, we're thankful that the words of a pagan removed from us by such a vast span of time can still speak to the things that you will not tolerate as competition even today in our country. And it's just as true because there aren't any new sins. 
Father, we're still combating the world, the flesh, and Satan. And it's the same old, same old, again and again and again. What was true for Demetrius is true for us today. We are fearful of losing our idols. But Father, may we see, like those, like those magicians there in Ephesus, it's worth giving up everything to follow Christ. There is nothing that we can hope for, cling to, depend upon that will even come close. So Father, I pray today would be the day that maybe some people here, some people watching or listening would lay down their idols and not pick them up again. They'd leave that temple on the hill and not re-enter it. They would burn their scrolls. They would strip off those charms and that they would go and buy that field where the treasure is. Recognizing that to be a part of your kingdom is far greater than anything the world, the flesh, or Satan can offer. So in this time, Father, we ask that you would, you would move among us, you would move on us, you would speak to us, you would, you would lead us, you would guide us as we respond to you. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name.